before we start, just want to say thank you for allowing me the opportunity and, and of course, want to uh, thank you for the prayer on my behalf, Stanley, and always want to, when you stand up here, want to offer up something that's beneficial to us all, and, and it is uh, from God's Word, and, and uh, so I guess uh, what motivated me to come up with this subject of knowing God was just kind of going through the internet and came across some statistics but uh, before I get into those specific statistics about the United States I just wanted to kind of talk a little bit about China and I don't know how many of you keep up with with what's going on over there as far as religion and Christianity but uh, it's a country that due to government policy has really never had the opportunity to know God um, 20% of the world's population lives in China, 1.39 billion people. So when you think of that in terms of knowing God, that's a, a big percentage of people that have never really had the chance to know him the way uh, Christians in the United States have. Although Christianity is not officially illegal in China. It is certainly a country that suppresses and even persecutes and punishes believers out of fear that any organized religion is a threat to the power of communism. In this communist country, only state-sanctioned churches are allowed to operate. Most worshipers that do worship attend non-sanctioned worship or what we would call an underground church. So, in fact, there is currently a orchestrated government campaign to remove all religious symbols, including crosses and steeples, uh, any religious symbol from church buildings. Some are being shut down and even demolished for these overt displays of religion. This government scrutiny is pushing wor worshipers further underground. You might think that all of this scrutiny from the Communist Party would be leading to declines in those seeking to know God. But as it turns out, it has made Christianity one of the fastest growing religions in China. Mind you, it's still a very small percentage. They've never had an opportunity to know God until recently due to access to information and the Bible via the internet and other sources. So I just wanted to to mention that before we get into our study and, and really what got me thinking about this is what's going on in the in the United States. I know that many of the brethren here have been to India and you have a lot of um, situations going on there with the government and and the Hindu and the Buddhism that's, that's happening in, in that part of the world. But specifically tonight, what got me to thinking about this uh, subject, knowing God, was the United States. So the reason I put this study together is because of my interest in some of the recent research done by the Pew Research Center. Just happened to come across it online and begin to think about why the causes of an eye-opening trend are happening in the United States. The study basically confirmed what I think has been a trend in America 
over the last several years, if not decades. Unfortunately, the trend is that God is not as big a part of our culture in America anymore. Less and less people know God and know what his message is than probably at any time in our history as a percentage. In fact, I have a couple of graphs here to look at concerning Christianity and the trends of Americans in religion over the last 10 years. So, if you take this, this graph, at the top it says the percentage of American adults that describe themselves as Christians. So on the left side is, of course, the percentage. And on the bottom are the years, starting in, in 09, going through the year 2019. So even if you can't see the numbers on there, you can see that there's a large drop-off, a great decline. I don't have all of the statistics behind why this is happening, but in my simplistic view of the situation, part of the problem is people simply don't know who God is anymore. They've quit looking, however, based on the lie from Satan that sin has no consequence. God has been pushed aside for other pursuits, whether it be sports or entertainment or careers or specific interests like hobbies, you know, the list can go on and on. This particular slide shows the opposite. This shows the people that are religiously unaffiliated in the same time span between 2009 and 2019. So again on the left is the percentage of people and on the bottom are the years. And you can see in that same time period those that would qualify themselves as religiously unaffiliated has risen in that time period. Now I can't tell you that these people are actually leaving to pursue evil pursuits like witchcraft or Satan worship or anything like that. But when, you, but when you put anything ahead of God or push God aside, then you get a people that don't know him anymore. So again, I have titled the lesson Knowing God because our challenge as Christians may be as simple as introducing God to others. Before we, we quit looking at this particular a bit of information. If you think back to that graph, up to 26% of the U.S. population in a 10-year span has risen. And these are people that consider themselves religiously unaffiliated. And so in that group, you, you do have people that identify as atheist. You do have people that identify as agnostic. An atheist by definition, is a person who does not believe in the existence of God. So of that 26%, there is a, a certain percentage of people that consider themselves to be atheists. Agnostic, a person who believes that nothing is known to prove or disprove that God exists. So again, of that 26%, some people would consider themselves to be agnostic. But what was striking to me 
was that the largest increase that people identify themselves as when it comes to a religious affiliation, nothing in particular. And that has grown from 3% to 17% out of the total 26% in this group. So I, I can't get into all the reasons that this has happened. Um, I think we probably can all speculate and wonder and, and reason why. You know, maybe they didn't grow up in homes that read the Bible or just have never had or taken an opportunity to get to know God, our Creator. But more importantly, they've turned their back on His plan of salvation. And I think that's what's alarming to us as Christians. As alarming as these numbers may seem, I think we need to understand that there are still opportunities to reach out to people who simply don't know who God is. So that's my, my goal tonight is to look at some scriptures about who God is and what scripture has to say about God and his nature. So, of course, we want to go to God's Word to do that. And um, so for basically the rest of our study tonight, uh, where I got the information was from the 33rd Psalm. And I wanted to read that because it does a really good job of condensing or grouping a lot of the things that we're going to talk about. I'm not going to get into all of the things that, about God's nature or who God is tonight, I mean, there's, there's not enough time in the, in the day to do that. But I did cherry pick a few things that I just wanted to highlight for tonight. So before we do that, let's read the 33rd Psalm. It says, For the word of the Lord is right, and all his works are done in truth. He loveth righteousness and judgment. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathereth the waters of the sea together as a heap. He layeth up the depth in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught, he maketh the devices of the people of effect. The counsel of the Lord standeth forever. The thoughts of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is Lord, and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. The Lord looketh from heaven, he beholdeth all the sons of men. From the place of his habitation he looketh upon all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashioned their hearts alike. He considereth all their works. There is no king saved by the multitude of a host. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. A horse is a vain thing for safety. Neither shall he deliver any by his great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waiteth for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Verse 
for our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. Let thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us according as we hope in thee. So I think the 33rd Psalm here is going to kind of set the stage for us as we move forward and I'll, I'll glean some things out of that, that Psalm that we're going to look at. So uh, before we get into that, I have a question for you. If you were to ask, if I were to ask you about your spouse and, and how you got to know them, you know, everyone would have a little bit different story. You know, if I were to ask you where you met them, you would say, well, maybe at church or school. Uh, maybe you had a blind date. Maybe you met them even online. I hate to even speculate, but those would be some of the answers that you would get. But if I asked you what caused you to marry your spouse, what, what qualities other than the physical, what were the things that attracted you to your spouse? There would be a lot of similarities in everyone's story, I think. Honesty, trustworthiness, reliability, consistency. Of course, they would be a loving person. We would get answers like, they make me a better person. They understand me. You know, John 4, 24 says, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. We don't have a physical relationship with God like we do with our spouse. The physical side of us notices the hair, the skin, the teeth, the smile. I'm going to stop there. But you know what? Even the most beautiful people in the world have physical limitations, don't they? Those limitations are going to limit their attractiveness. You know, even supermodels' lips can only stand so much Botox. Their teeth can only stand so much whitener. The skin can only do endure so much moisturizer. There's an upside limit to our physical attractiveness even with all the enhancements. Keep your comments to yourself here. This is not the case with the spiritual. The upside potential for our spiritual being can't be overdone. You just simply can't be too honest. You can't be too reliable. You can't be too loving. You can't be too faithful. Now, as humans, we find ways to limit ourselves spiritually by not having these qualities. But we aren't limited to a certain upside level like we are physically. These are qualities that make God who he is. And these are qualities that reassure us of his promises. I use Psalms 33 as the source of scripture for our study. But before we look any further, I want to look at God's nature uh, from an example in Exodus chapter 3. So here we have 
God explains, explaining to Moses the plan to deliver the children of Israel out of bondage. It says, And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, said Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. And God said, Moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. So Moses is struggling here to know how to introduce God to the children of Israel. So when we read here of God's answer, identifying himself as I am that I am, God's simply stating a fact. He's not being coy. And he's stating the fact that his existence is not contingent on anyone. His plans are not contingent upon any circumstance. He, in fact, is the personification of the eternal, constant God. He stands ever-present, unchangeable, and completely sufficient in himself to carry out and accomplish what he wills to accomplish. None of us can make this claim. We know that Pharaoh tried. He tried to stand in opposition of the Lord, and Pharaoh was not willing to concede that there was a a power higher than himself. He was not willing to yield his plans to God's plans, who is truly the all-powerful and all-sufficient God. Pharaoh, in essence, said, I am who I am, and therefore, therefore will not yield to a higher power. This is not, or was not, just the weakness of Pharaoh, but of mankind. As we continually go about trying to be our own I am. And like Hugh mentioned this morning about arrogance. We simply are not always easily convinced of our own helplessness and dependency. We tend to delude ourselves into thinking we have solutions that we are simply not capable of providing. We know it did not turn out well for Pharaoh and it won't turn out well for us either unless we acknowledge who God truly is. With that being said, we're going to go ahead and look at some other scripture about what it has to say about God's eternal nature. God is eternal. Psalms 90, verse 1 and 2. Our Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place I'm sorry, it's just Lord. Thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or even thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. You know, God doesn't start and stop. He doesn't have a starting place or a finishing place. He isn't temporary or limited in any way by time. And this may be difficult 
for us to understand because we live in these physical bodies and we see the deaths and the, the temporary things that happen to us in this life. As I was looking at this, the opposite of eternal might be temporary. And so I got to looking at some synonyms for temporary. So if we know God is not temporary, we know he is, he is not an interim. He's not makeshift. He's not a fill-in or a provisional or a short-lived or a passing or a transient or a fleeting God. Again, that's hard for us to comprehend because of our physical limitations. We are born and we live a limited number of years and then this physical body dies. Hebrews 9, 27 says we are is appointed unto men once to die. We all know this to be a limitation of our human physical existence. It is a condition of this physical body that we can neither avoid nor control. So we realize the shell of a body is short-lived, it's transient, it's temporary, it's fleeting. All of the synonyms that we talked about earlier. But that is not the case with God. Revelations 1 and 8 says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. God simply states that He is here, has always been here, and always will be here. In other words, He is eternal. More importantly, His promises are eternal. This should be very reassuring to us as Christians and to anyone who wants to know God. There isn't going to be an end to his reign as the Almighty. He isn't going to get us started on a spiritual path and then have to quit or resign or get voted out. You know, in politics, we have a situation uh, called a lame duck presidency. After a new president has been elected, but the old president remains in office for that short period of time between the uh, swearing in and, and the beginning of his term, we call that the lame duck portion, there's really no power left with that pre outgoing president, is there? So everybody kind of takes their focus off of the old president and wants to know what the new guy's going to be doing, and they start positioning themselves for for jobs in the new presidency. That's not how it works with God. God inhabits eternity. Isaiah 57, 15, For thus saith the high and lofty, lofty one that inhabiteth e eternity, whose name is holy. So we don't have to worry about transitions of power when it comes to the Almighty. He always is, and always will be in control. Next thing we want to look at is that God is all-powerful. Psalms 33 and 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. 
Romans 13 and 1 says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for this is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. So we should be encouraged by the fact that God is in control. I want to contrast that to Satan. We all know the story of the temptation of Jesus by Satan. In Luke 4, verse 5, it says, And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will give it, if thou wilt worship me, all shall be thine. The only problem is that Satan's power is limited and confined to things of this world. God has allowed him to have dominion here on this earth. So Satan certainly had the ability to offer Jesus this type of worldly power. But his power is temporary and confined. We should all have great confidence in the fact that God is the ultimate and everlasting power in our lives. Second Corinthians four verses three and four, but if the gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. So Satan's power is limited to those who don't believe in God's gospel. In other words, the only power that Satan has over us is deception. Verse 4 says that that deception blinds us from believing the truth. Sometimes we tend to think of Satan as being equal to God in his power. But the reality is is that deception and lies are his strength. Does that mean we should underestimate him? Certainly not. But don't be fooled into thinking God isn't in ultimate control. First John 3 and 8. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Again, this confirms God's control of our eternal future. Confirms that God is all-powerful and that his plan of salvation is and the blood of Jesus are there for us. Whereas Satan's power is limited, God will ultimately crush and destroy the works of the devil. So as Christians, we are reassured and strengthened by the fact that God has sent his son to accomplish what we weren't able to accomplish without him. The next thing we want to look at, God is truth. 
Psalms 33, verse 4. For the word of the Lord is right, and all of his works are done in truth. You know, truth is a cornerstone of any strong and healthy relationship. Whether it be family, or a friend, or our marriages, I think we all understand the importance of being honest and truthful in these relationships. Honesty is the foundation of so many of the bonds we make in life because it allows the relationship to grow. Honesty and truth are like building blocks of trust. There is no more important relationship that we strive to maintain than the one that we have with God. Because God is a God of truth, then we should find comfort in the things that he tells us. Because we know we can rely on his promises. Titus verses 1 and 2, I don't have it on the screen, it says God cannot lie. There's nothing inconsistent or changing or halfway in what God tells us. So we know that God can be completely trusted. Think about how fragile the truth is in our society. I'll give you an example. Lightning never strikes the same place twice. You've heard that all of your life. But this is simply false. In fact, don't try it out. Just because lightning often does hit, it, it often does hit the same place twice or at least very close proximity to the first strike. The truth is not fragile with God. What he says you can bank on. God never changes. James 1 and 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Why is the fact that God never changes so important to us? Just like the sun rising in the east and setting in the west, it's reliable, consistent, and without fail. Because God being holy cannot turn into something different than what he is. There is no variableness. He can't become evil himself, nor can he tempt anyone or be the cause of anyone turning to sin or darkness. It's just not who he is. It's important because the fact God never changes means that God is never altering his character, never failing in his promises, never ceasing in his goodness and his love towards us. In fact, Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, For I am the Lord... I change not. As a parent and a spouse, we know that this is a quality that we strive for as well. When we're raising our families, we don't want to be guilty of saying one thing and doing another. We don't want to be flighty or ungrounded or inconsistent in our relationships. We don't want to be a parent or a spouse that can't be counted on or failing in our promises. God is the perfect example of someone that can be counted on in a consistent, never-changing way. The next thing we want to look at, 
God is faithful. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 9. Know thou therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. When we think of faithful, we think of someone that is loyal and constant and steadfast. Someone that is faithful is someone that always does the right thing, even in the face of adversity or temptation. But the Lord is faithful, who shall establish you and keep you from evil. God is love. 1 John 4, verse 7 and 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. God's love is so important because the kind of love that God is and has for us is unconditional. It holds true regardless of circumstance. We can fail God and we can fail to love God, but that won't keep him from loving us. And we know that he loved us enough to send his own son to die on our behalf. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. Romans eight thirty nine. Nor height, nor depth, nor, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we didn't study many of God's characteristics tonight. We didn't talk about mercy. We didn't talk about his holiness. We didn't talk about the hope found in God. But we did discuss God's eternal nature. And the good news is that God offers us something beyond a physical existence, doesn't he? For those of us that know God... These are some of the characteristics that make us so hopeful about our eternal future because we serve a God that is true to every one of his promises. So it's important for us to understand that God has a plan of salvation that was carried out on the cross by his Son and our Savior. The good news or the gospel is Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection he died and shed his blood for us so that we could have our sins forgiven. We haven't discussed how to become obedient to the gospel tonight. But if that's something that you would like to talk about. Or if you've been obedient to the gospel and you have a need in your life. That this congregation can help you with. Then we're going to offer an invita invitation song at this time. If you would come forward as we sing. <coughs>